It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The other side of midnight presents the Midnight Files. I was lucky enough to talk with Dr. Jensine Andresen. And welcome to the other side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. She's a member, very, very intelligent woman, a member of the research team of the Galileo Project at Harvard and the editor of the book Extraterrestrial Intelligence, Academic and Societal Implications. And this book is fascinating. It basically looks at the possibility of encountering extraterrestrials and explores it from every possible angle. What would it mean to academia? What would it mean to science? What would it mean to theology? What would it mean to politics? It looks at it from every different possible angle. And the chapter that uh, Dr. Andresen has contributed to this book is uh, a very thought-provoking one. And I only had one issue with our conversation last week, which is that it was far too short, and I didn't get to go into all the many areas that, uh, that I was hoping to explore. But with a whole bunch of news on this front breaking within the last week or so, I uh, can't think of a better person to welcome back than Dr. Andresen. Uh, it is great to talk with you again. Uh, thank you so much for coming back and again at such a, an odd hour. Well, I'm really appreciative of being here. I really enjoyed the conversation. And by all means, call me Jensine. I always like to start with my disclaimer. I'm not speaking on behalf of the Galileo Project. I'm just speaking as a author and researcher. But thank you again, Frank. All right. So last Thursday, the director of national intelligence, the office of the director of national intelligence, came up with the latest edition in uh, their report on UAPs, um, including members of the military talking about um, these unexplained sightings. Before we get into the substance of the report itself, give our listeners a little bit of a refresher. How did this report come to be? Didn't we just do this a year or so ago? Why are we here again? Yeah, you're spot on with that. So I think I'll take it even. I've really been thinking about how to describe this in a visual way that people can immediately grok. And so first, let's say, who is ODNI? What is ODNI? So, and, you know, yes, they're writing these reports on UAP, but what is ODNI? So ODNI is the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And when you have a government acronym and you have an O in front, that usually means office. The DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, right now is Avril Haynes. So ODNI is one of 18 organizations 
that comprise what's called the IC, or the Intelligence Community, in the United States. And it's only one of two independent agencies. So the other one is the elephant that's not in this room, which is CIA. So the two independent agencies of the IC, of the intelligence community, are ODNI and the CIA. And then also within the IC are nine DOD um, or, you know, entities, we could call them defense intelligence agency, et cetera, et cetera. So what's quite interesting is that this is, I mean, most people are going to think of this newest report that dropped last Thursday. I thought, Frank, our timing was so impeccable because we did the interview sure. and then a few hours later, here comes the report. So a lot of people will think this is the second report. Technically, it's the first report. What came out a year ago that you just alluded to in June of 2021 was ODNI's preliminary assessment on UAP. And so, well, why is one a report and one is a preliminary assessment? Are we going to get new reports? I'm like, what is all that about? So the reason that the 2021 June document was entitled a, a preliminary assessment, not a report, is it, okay, so let, let me <laughs> say the obvious. ODNI does just not wake up one day and say, hey, let's write a report on UAP, you know, because they know that's going to just generate a lot of discussion. So the driver for this is Congress. Congress makes the requirement and ODNI is responding to the requirement. So the first requirement came in the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021, and it required a report on essentially the progress of the UAP task force. Back then it was the UAP task force. And then we got ODNI's preliminary assessment. Well, with the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2022, not the most recent one that was signed into law for this fiscal year, but the, the year before, Congress then delineated a requirement for annual formal reports on UAP. So what just dropped last Thursday was the first technically formal report on UAP. And its, its driver is Congress making the requirement and ODNI responding on behalf of the requirement. And I, I guess I will say this is, this is the first of five formal reports. So as it's articulated in the NDAA for fiscal year 2022, these reports are technically, this one was late, they're technically due October 31st, so this one was technically due a couple of months ago, and that requirement runs for five years, so we should expect a report in the fall, winter, every year until 2026. 
So uh, on UAP. Let's talk about the what's actually in the report. In it. Um, <laughs> okay. So they uh, apparently there was an increase in the number of UAP sightings. Some could be explained from being drones or some other easily explainable phenomenon. Uh, the a lot of others could not be explained. About how many could not be explained through conventional means? 171. So out of the number reported as of August 30, 2022, the new, well, the first and new report tells us that 171, and this is the language that's used, are uncharacterized and unattributed Mm. UAP reports. Which, which means they don't know what they are. Sure. That's plain and simple. Obviously, it doesn't mean that, um, that these are extraterrestrial in nature. But do you have uh, an idea of where we would uh, begin to know if they are extraterrestrial in nature? That's sort of the million-dollar question that a lot of people in the intelligence community, at least in any documentation that they would put out to the public, are going out of their way to avoid. And uh, they don't want to draw any comparisons to saying, all right, well, there's 150 flying saucers or something along those lines. How do we know if this is something that's extraterrestrial in nature, Jensine? Well, I think my personal view is that people are being way too timid about the use of the word extraterrestrial. It's not a tough word. You can say it. You shouldn't be afraid of saying it. And a lot of people still are. I don't think that's because people with access to, well, certainly the people with access to classified information that I've heard from, they're not shy about the word extraterrestrial. But I think to, you know, sort of have preserved that modicum of decorum, if you will, People in Congress are are still a bit timid about using the word. That being said, the director of national intelligence herself, April Haynes, she um, in uh, Bobby, I guess in November. Uh, well, she appeared at the uh, National Cathedral in Washington D.C., and she actually almost she said something. The quote I don't have in front of me, but was, you know. Is something coming to Earth extraterrestrially? And then there was a major walk back of people trying to explain what she really meant, even though it was pretty clear what she said. Um, but your question is a really good one, because how does how does one determine if something is extraterrestrial? And I think that the most obvious way would be by saying that the flight characteristics and the capabilities demonstrated by the object are beyond the realm of what's currently possible even in the classified world in terms of what any human object is capable of doing. And some of those characteristics are incredibly rapid acceleration, like virtually instantaneous acceleration. Similarly, virtually instantaneous deceleration, the ability to hover for hours upon hours upon hours. So what we believe to be 
beyond the capability of, let's say, the energy um, capabilities of conventional drones um, and all kinds of other flight characteristics that are unusual. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. We're talking with uh, Dr. Jensine Andresen. Uh, she's the editor of the book Extraterrestrial Intelligence, Academic and Societal Implications. So let's talk about that, because I, I've raised this question before, what you just raised, that the technology that is shown and the flight pattern is so dissimilar to what we know as being possible for anybody uh, on on this earth there are going to be those that say, all right, well, this is just um, a technology of a foreign government that uh, we are not aware of that they're capable yet, or this is technology of some experimental American military technology that they don't want the public knowing that uh, that's almost ready to be manufactured yet. What do you say to both of those possibilities that would dismiss this as not extraterrestrial, but very terrestrial, either by our own government or a foreign government. Okay, so let's just take a point that you made in the last conversation that's a good one. You shouldn't be too credulous. So, for example, there are things within the classified world, plasma stealth technology is one of them, that to a witness on the ground might appear beyond human capability and isn't. It's very much within human capability. So I am the last person that's going to just say anything unusual is extraterrestrial. I don't jump there. That being the case, I think you have a couple of, let's take your first question about uh, technology associated with an adversary like Russia or China. Common sense would tell us, given how the Russian military is performing in Ukraine, that this is not within Russia's, you know, toolkit right now. Um, so it leaves really China. China maybe, but there's been a really, I doubt it for all cases, because the DOD with um, the intelligence community has done a very good job of attributing a number of these sightings. So, for example, We've got 171 that are left unattributed, but they've done a very good a, a, a job of attributing 366, according to the report. And you know they were doing everything that they possibly could before this report came out to attribute what they could attribute. And I think that our intelligence is pretty good on China. I think the CIA does a good job. I think other um, intelligence gathering, you know, systems that we have all the, you know, all the ints, so to speak, we pretty much know what China has and what China doesn't have. And, you know, people have made another very good observation, which is where would, if let's say, let's just hypothesize that this is a Chinese drone. Where's it, where did it launch from? Because a lot of these um, sightings are by naval and air force aviators but in the case of naval aviators who are making the sightings they're right off of our coast they're right off of the east coast of the u.s um near you know coast of virginia and they're off the west coast of the u.s 
So where did this mysterious Chinese drone launch from that's supposedly staying there eight hours at a time in the, in the air? So that's a real problem with that argument. I think the problem with the argument that it might be our own super secret tech is, is again, just that we wouldn't test this on our own military personnel. Right. I just don't think we'd well, do that, that. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Now, sometimes the people that are most skeptical in our audience aren't even the people that are um, uh, dismissive of the possibility of extraterrestrials. Sometimes the biggest skeptics are the people that are big believers in uh, extraterrestrial visitation to the Earth. Talk to those folks for a second, because there's a lot of people that believe that the government just lies to the public about everything, and they have not told the truth about the UAP issue and what the government itself knows about the UAP issue since uh, the 1940s. Why should anybody give any weight to a report that comes from the top echelons of the intelligence community and the military, why should we have any expectation that the government is going to tell us the truth about this sort of thing? Well, I think it is true that some of those individuals who feel burned, so to speak, they have a point. There has been a lot of documentation that shows over the years that the government has been disingenuous on this topic. And there were, you know, I'm I'm not going to try to make excuses for that, but certainly that has occurred. The Condon Committee is a great example. The Robertson panel is another example. And just, uh, you know, you can see it in the documentation that's been released from FOIA sometimes, you know, discussion of psychological warfare value of this topic and how that might um, be used, so to speak, right? Not necessarily, not necessarily intended to uh, to trick people, but there was a real concern in the early years, in the 50s and the 40s, about sort of overloading the communication systems, especially in Washington, D.C., so that if there had been a uh, launch of an of a, um, atomic weapon against the United States, that our nuclear weapon against the United States, that our switchboards would have been overloaded. And so people were really concerned about that. So there was a conscious effort to damp down public interest in the topic. I mean, so why do you trust the government all of a sudden now? I think that the government, again, I don't think this is something Odie and I just, you know, woke up one day and said, oh, gee, let's inform everybody. But what was happening, if I understand from people with whom I have spoken and, and, you know, just things that you can read between the lines also, is that the number of sightings was increasing exponentially. And although it's not part of the most recent NDAA for fiscal year 2023, there was a report that came out. It was, um, it came out of Senator Mark Warner's office and it was essentially a a report on the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023. The language of it never was folded into the the new NDAA, but it's really telling. It's worth looking that report up because 
it explains that the increase in UAP sightings is increasing exponentially. So I think what's happening is, is maybe twofold. There's more of a sincere interest right now on the part of government to understand what is happening. And in order to do that, government is reaching out to scientists, for example. And so there's more sincerity there. Like, you know, it's one thing if, if, there, was, if there were one or two UAP per year or something, but when you're dealing with these numbers, people want to understand what's happening. And in order to do that, they have to reach out. In order to reach out, they have to be more open about the reality of the phenomenon. I think that's part of it. Um, well, I mean, maybe just leave it at that. Okay, no, that uh, makes a lot of sense. I am curious what sort of patterns a lot of these uh, sightings seem to fit, not only from the military, but from average ordinary citizens. One of the sightings that has been deemed most credible and most scrutinized and uh, was analyzed by everybody from conventional media to uh, people like Dr. John Mack uh, to documentarians has been a sighting that Carlos Diaz experienced in Mexico. There's a documentary called Ships of Light in which this fellow uh, Carlos Diaz talks about a UFO sighting he experienced. I saw this luminous object. It was enormous. It was about 11 at night. I was with a friend. It was about 12 years ago. It was overwhelming, 10 times bigger than the moon. It came towards us, then it turned, and it left towards the next village. It was enormous. The same shape, the same colors, very big, enormous. A lot of people have tried to discredit uh, what uh, Carlos Diaz is saying there, but uh, there's really very little uh, evidence to suggest that he would have any reason to be uh, dishonest about what he saw. And that does seem to fit a, a pattern of the kind of thing that other people have seen. Based on what's in this UAP report, are there patterns that are consistent with what American members of the military are seeing in some of these UAPs? Well, in so again, we're reading the unclassified version of this first formal report, and it is noteworthy for its lack of, let's say, technical description of anything. It really gives you the numbers. It tells you the agencies that are looking into it, and that's about what it says in an unclassified version. The preliminary assessment a year ago, though, the June 25th, 2021, does say this, and I, I just happen to have it here. Some UAP appeared to remain stationary in winds aloft, move against the wind, maneuver abruptly, or move at considerable speed without discernible means of propulsion. In a small number of cases, military aircraft systems processed radio frequency energy associated with the sightings. So, the the point that I wanted to underscore there is without visible means of propulsion. That's a biggie. But to your bigger question, and it's a really, again, it's a, a fantastic question. And it underscores why we cannot just dismiss this. I think, it, let me put it this way, people can do whatever they want, but it would be very sure. unwise to dismiss this phenomenon. Which is, if you really go back in the literature... And I've been reading this literature for over 30 years, and I don't just read it in English. 
So there are a lot of accounts in other languages. If you really go back in the literature, you can see the breadth of descriptions. And in that chapter, Mind and Matter, Matter of the Mind, I propose something that's a bit novel, which is a way to look at these as everything from a very defined craft on the one side, all the way across the continuum to more amorphous manifestations. So, for example, Hestala, Norway, is known for very amorphous, almost plasma-like manifestations. And on the opposite side, on you know the defined end of the continuum, very disc-like, metallic, often described as metallic, like the famous Kenneth Arnold sightings from, I think it was 19, somewhere in the 1940s, probably 1947 or something like that. So this is a very sophisticated intelligence because this is, gives you another counter argument to why aren't these just the you know, drones of Russia or China. Well, Russia and China didn't have drones in the 40s. They didn't have drones in the 30s. They didn't, you know, we have, we've got really good reports going back to the late 1800s. So nobody, even the U.S., didn't have anything even, you know, remotely resembling this. So it's, it's quite interesting, too, because the same way you have this continuum from very defined to more amorphous, you have a continuum in terms of size. So some things are described that are the size of a basketball. And this is a mm. very, very common description that people have. Orbs, orbs that are just, you know, small and come very close to the ground, very close to people, sort of like um, just watching what's going on. And then at the opposite you know, side of that size spectrum, you have what Carlos is describing, which is enormous things, the size of a football field. You often see people compare things to sure. the sizes of balls or fields. And so football field, that comes up all the time. So it's, it's, it's quite interesting. I love it. I think it's, it's one of the most so, fascinating topics. Same here. There. Same here. Dr. Jensen Andresen, thank you so much, as always, for uh, for joining me. Uh, there's no shortage of, uh, of stuff that we can continue to dig into on this issue. I hope we can chat again soon. Thanks, Frank. Have a great day. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.